Some humans treasure curiosity. Others of us want to repress it, stop it, keep it down, and adhere to beliefs. What's that all about? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. A mother of young kids wrote on Facebook recently that she was against any education that did not reinforce the beliefs she was determined to impart to her children. Growing up in the 20th century, I never would have imagined a 21st century in which curiosity and the love of learning would be seen as something that had to be repressed. It was unthinkable. What we celebrated in those optimistic times, a vision of real freedom to learn, explore, and exercise creativity, seems to have frightened a social, political, and cultural far right, which many of us thought was quite small and not particularly relevant to the future. Yeah, but here we are. From the joyful exploration of possibilities, which manifested itself in the late 60s, a powerful reactive energy is clearly manifest to that. It's the very antithesis of curiosity. Our guests on Keeping Democracy Alive today are authors of a new book called Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, which has been called, quote, an ambitious and joyful book, connecting all the dots to envision a better world. This bold new theory for curiosity has enormous implications for building a more curious, creative, and equitable society, end of quote. Another review explains that curiosity is more than wanting to know, it is wanting to connect. And we all know how isolated so many feel these days. According to Curious Minds authors Perry Zurin and Denny S. Bassett, what gets left out in the conventional understanding of curiosity are the relations between ideas and between people. They are our guests on Keeping Democracy today, uh, Alive Today. Perry Zurin is Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University and the author of Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Danny Bassett is the J. Peter Skirkinich, Skirkinich Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania and received a MacArthur Fellowship in 2014. Thank you both for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for, Thanks having, for us. having us. Well, I am curious. <laughs> what prompted you to write this book? What, what need does it seek to address which has not been met? Yeah, well, part of what really prompted us to write was our own relationship, I think. Uh, you know, the, the backstory goes pretty far back in that sense. So we're, we're twins and, and we grew up together and uh, we've, we've kind of nurtured our curiosity beside one another for, 
you know, decades now. And um, as we became professors, I became a professor of philosophy, Danny became a professor of especially neuro and network science. We realized we were interested in some of the same problems and questions about how the mind works and specifically how how it is that we learn and how it is not just the, how we learn new information, but how we come to acquire new perspectives and perspectives that can really change change our worlds. So I think it was that that consonance in our interests that led us to think, you know, we should really start working together and writing together. Um, and and this book is is a product of that relationship. Opening up to new ideas and new concepts. Whoa, how threatening that must be to the certain powers that be and the people who want uh, rigidity to be enforced on everybody. But uh, there's a lot of resistance to that. W what a surprise. The word itself, curiosity, what is the conventional understanding of the word? And in what ways is that conventional understanding deficient? Yeah, Danny, I wonder if you want to take this one. Yeah, I'll start maybe just in highlighting what it means in terms of science, and then maybe, Perry, you can you can take it from there in terms of what it means in the history of philosophy. But in science, um, the way that curiosity has typically been viewed is that it is a motivation to acquire a piece of information. Um, and for a long time, uh, people have wondered, uh, is it the case that there's a piece of your brain that activates when you are curious? So you have a, a, a curiosity piece in your brain. Um, and if that's the case, then it would be very easy to study from a scientific perspective. Oh, we just do um, some brain imaging scans and um, we watch that piece of the brain light up. And depending on how much it lights up, that's how curious the person is. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Um, however, uh, it's a relatively simplistic account, and it turns out that it's not the way it works. Um, so what people have found, scientists have found over the last couple of years, is that there's a whole set of different regions of the brain that have to come together and mm. communicate with one another in order um, to allow curiosity to happen. And in fact, um, trying to unpack exactly what that group of regions is and why and how they work has led some scientists to sort of throw up their hands um, yeah. in despair and say, maybe we don't even know what curiosity is. Um, and maybe that's why we can't understand which regions of the brain are activated and how. And so that's actually part of also what motivated um, the book and, and my interaction with Perry in trying to bring together the science and the philosophy of curiosity, because science is sort of at a place where they're really questioning whether we know enough to even begin to study the field. And so I think that motivated me to turn to philosophy and say, is there a definition of curiosity in philosophy that we can take back into science to help sort of clarify our investigation? So maybe Perry? Interesting. Yeah. Keep going. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, so what we, what we really thought about um, um, as we, as we can, or as I go back into the history of philosophy and philosophical thought, one of the things that's become so obvious is that we've been talking about curiosity the same way for thousands of years, and that is as a as a desire to acquire new information, right? I mean, when you Google something, when you ask a question, when you look it up, you know, when you, when you ping a friend, um, you're you're looking to acquire a new piece of information. This is helpful, but it's also a really limited approach to curiosity. It misses something fundamental about curiosity. And that is that curiosity connects ideas to ideas and people to people. It's not just stockpiling little bits of information, right? It's really a capacity to connect. 
And, and mm. so it's, as soon as we have that new definition, we can go back to psychology and back to neuroscience and back to education and back out to the world and really reimagine what curiosity is doing and can do. Interesting. As I think about, I, I have great curiosity about many things, and I thoroughly enjoy being curious. And, and the payoff, if I'm curious about something and kind of learn more and find out about it, there's kind of the payoff. There's the connection there, like, aha, you know, it, it, it connects with, with other people and other research that's been done. And uh, yeah, it's it's a real payoff. There's a, a kind of a smile that comes from <laughs> from <laughs> finding things out and, and uh, connecting with other people and with other ideas. It's like, oh, yeah, that explains it. And in terms of looking for something simple to explain it, I am often reminded of a quote from H.L. Mencken who said, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. <laughs> it's not simple. I, I think a key element we as humans are born with is curiosity. It just, that's, we're born with that. What happens to that in elementary schools? Is curiosity, does it tend to be encouraged or, or what? And I know there's you know thousands of elementary schools, but what's your understanding of how curiosity is dealt with at early ages in schools? Yeah, I mean, there's some significant literature on this, and I would definitely recommend the work by uh, Susan Engel, who focuses on these questions. But but the, the, the scholarship really shows that there's a distinct dive in um, the number of kind of questions that elementary students ask uh, in the classroom, um, going from sort of kindergarten to fifth grade in particular. And, and I think that, you know, some of this is that we start to internalize our questions. Uh, that's just part of growing up. That's fine. But some of it is that students really realize that they're being taught to know particular things in a particular way. And that their, their teachers aren't necessarily curious about the material, but rather kind of imparting the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it, it becomes not a space of curiosity so much as education. And I think there, there has, in fact, been a, a split between the practice of curiosity and the practice of education. And we, we want to go back to that split and, and, and reignite education with curiosity. Oh, it sounds, sounds great. And I think about, you know, imparting it, you know, any kind of top-down, here's what it is, here's what you need to accept – that's that's not quite exactly my ideal of freedom. You know, freedom is, uh, you know, we're we're born with that curiosity. I think, and the, to to explore that, we can all learn from one another, and that's a connection, as you say, uh, about uh, curiosity. And Absolutely. The, the the book posits that there are three distinct styles of curiosity, and it's not just limited to this. Not either or. But there is the butterfly, the hunter, and the dancer. Well, that sure sparks my curiosity. What are the what are those styles? The butterfly, the hunter, and the dancer. Please tell us. Yeah, so this this scholarship really came out of uh, some research I was doing, just kind of revisiting the way in which curiosity gets talked about in Western intellectual history. And I was looking first. I was looking for all the definitions, all the ways in which the Greeks have just defined curiosity. You know, and then I thought, oh, this is kind of I don't know. There was something that wasn't 
uh, super interesting about the, the definitions. And so I thought, well, how are they describing curiosity? And maybe the descriptions themselves are more interesting and more alive than the definitions, which often is the case. And that turned out to be the case here. So the descriptions are fascinating and typically boil down to these three kind of styles or stereotypes of curiosity. The butterfly is somebody who is interested in all kinds of things, just constantly kind of in involved in learning anything and everything that they can. The hunter is someone who's far more focused and typically comes uh-huh. to their life with a question, really wants to zero in on that issue or on that, you know, that their work or their whatever it is. And they stay pretty focused on on the few things that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, there's the dancer. And the dancer is somebody who gets really creative and imaginative when they get curious. They like to ask the what if and the why not. And what if we try it this way or this way or this way? What if we bring together two people who've never talked to each other? What happens? You know, I mean, they're, they're just really interested in taking those risks and typically creating some new perspective from it. Oh, interesting. And how, I'm, I'm curious doing research for any book is is always it's a big deal and it's a big part of how a book comes to be how did you come up with these archetypes and and how did you test them yeah i mean this is so i i you know i came up with the archetypes really by by doing a historical philosophical analysis of ancient medieval modern contemporary texts but then danny with their uh, you know experience in in scientific ex- experimentation was able to really kind of put feet to that and kind of understand it and test it out in contemporary terms. Danny, you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is work that we did in collaboration with David Lydon Staley, who's a professor of communication at uh-huh. the Annenberg School at Penn. And what we did together is to have people from today um, browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes a day for 21 days. And our questions were, is it the case that people today still show the same ancient archetypes that Perry uncovered from 2000 years ago? Or, um, you know, we were a little worried that we might find that technology has ruined us forever. (laughs) The kind of information seeking that we show today is different. Um, I laugh because it's not, you know, it's possible that that our techniques have changed for good reason and not necessarily for bad. But um, so in the process of doing this work, we were able to show that um, some individuals are very much like the butterfly. So they move from one Wikipedia page to another one that may have little in common with one another. So, for example, a page on um, rhododendron bushes and then immediately a page on um, a famous uh, political figure. Uh, so those would be a very random, you know, step. Um, and and then we also found people who were much more hunter-like. So, for example, there was mm-hmm. one person who went through Wikipedia pages for the royal family for the entire 21 days. Um, and then somebody else spent the 21 days browsing pages all related to Jewish history. So these would be hunter-type individuals. Uh, and then we found a lot of people who were in between, who weren't, mm-hmm. you know, fully busybody-like and weren't fully hunter-like. They were in, in between. <laughs> so then the next question that we had was, well, is that is that is it the case that we um, maintain our butterfly-like capacity or hunter-like capacity for a long period of time, or does it depend on the day? So we broke the data down into separate weeks, and what we found is that people who are busybody-like or butterfly-like on the first day 
also tend to be that way throughout the 21 days. Um, and the same for the hunter. So what that means is that we each have a sort of central tendency mm-hmm. to be one of these uh, characters versus the other. Um, while we can still show some slight variation um, and and uh, change over the course of the 21 days. So we all have a tendency, but it's also sort of a flexible tendency. Yeah, and I can, I can, I'm, as I go forward from this day, I'm going to pay more attention to what kind of curiosity I have about different things. I mean, I, I think just personally speaking, you know, sometimes I'm the hunter, I'm looking for a specific things, uh, thing, and sometimes I, the dancer, I, you know, want to change things as they go along. And, and of course, uh, the butterfly. So we're all, uh, I guess, uh, this, this kind of a harmony between all three. Is that right? Yes, I think so. And definitely in the course of the work that I do, for example, Mm -hmm. I need to move between the three different styles at different points of a project. So at the beginning of a project, Uh I need to be more butterfly-like and search around in very different areas to Uh find the idea space I want to follow, the question that's really burning inside of me. Um, And then I need to be more hunter-like after that to dig in deeply to understand the scholarship in that space. And then I need to end by being more of a dancer and connecting what I find in the research and uh, work that's been done previously in other nearby fields. So any scientific research actually has to move through these three different archetypes. Fascinating. Uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today are the authors of, of a new book, uh, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. And they happen to be uh, twins, uh, Perry Zurin and Danny Bassett. And uh, I am, I am of course, curious, and that word's going to keep coming up. I'm sorry, I can't help it. Uh, that what, what is, here we are in a very interesting time in, in world history. What, what does the, understanding curiosity, how does that, uh, why is that important for people as, as we go forward and as we, here we are in almost in 2023, uh, how, do, how does that, uh, what, what potential does that have to, to increase uh, connection and to, you know, understanding curiosity? What, what, uh, how does that uh, benefit humanity at this point? Big question. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big things for me, uh, when I think about what curiosity brings to our contemporary moment is that it invites us, again, not to think so much about simply acquiring information or, in fact, acquiring positions or kind of, uh, um, you know, this is who I am and this is what I believe and I will never change. And, I, you know, like this kind of entrenchment that we are starting to see in the in the political sphere that's mm-hmm. creating the political polarization, um, not only in our own country, but around the globe. Yes. I think that's really a failure of curiosity. I think that's that's limiting our curiosity. We're not able to go back to the drawing board and to build new connections between uh-huh. the things that we believe and the people that we know and the things that we value. Interesting. And it, you know, I, had, I have to say, I'm of a certain age where I used to have to go to a library to look things up. Imagine. And it took a lot of time. Now, of course, the answers are there in an instant. Google, iPhone, social media. Are they making us more curious or are they killing curiosity? Are they friend or foe or something, a mix? What's your sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's important 
I think I think it's first it's it's helpful to know that every time we have a technological advance um, for the human species, people worry that it's somehow going to ruin us. You know, so if you go back and you read, for example, um, old kind of opinion pieces about the development of the newspaper or the development of the printing press, people were really were really nervous that this kind of dissemination of mass information, which to them was mass information at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they didn't know what was coming, but you know they worried that this would that this would kind of make all of ev- all of our knowledge superficial, and we wouldn't really be soulful mm. people. Mm. Um, and I think the same worry happens today when we think about the digital re- revolution and social media and things like that. Um, just as, and so just as I don't think that the printing press ruined us, and I don't mm. think the newspaper ruined us, I also think don't think that social media necessarily ruins us with the digital revolution. I think it it presents possibilities and limitations, and we need to think carefully about both things. Uh, and one of the significant limitations I will draw out is that, um, you know, information at our fingertips or in our pockets and, and along social media and things like this tends to uh, saturate our free time in a way that we don't get a break and we don't step away and we don't kind of empty our mind a little bit and allow it to have moments of doing precisely the thing we're talking about, getting curious about something, and then kind of weaving together new theories, new ideas, new perspectives, new creative pro- uh, products um, with our with our, with our our restful mind, right? That's the thing that I think is at stake in too much use of, um, you know, all the all the internet things and how is how in what ways does curiosity make connection between things we know and things we don't know how is your book a kind of a plug for relationality what does that mean and why is that important i think there's some real possibilities there Yeah, yeah danny do you want to take this one Uh, Yeah, I'd love to at least start um, and then have you turn it over. But so I think that um, the the power of of connection is something uh, that many thinkers have pointed out over many decades or more. Um, And for example, in the sciences, we can go back to Henri Poincaré, who's a famous mathematician, who wrote that the aim of science is not things themselves, as the dogmatists in their simplicity imagine, um, but the relations among things. Outside these relations, there is no reality knowable. And I think that's a really powerful statement. It suggests that um, understanding and understanding meaning requires us to understand the relations among things. And that's so fundamental that it um, constitutes scientific knowledge itself. Um, but then you can sort of fast forward a little bit further into 1912, around around 1912, when um, John Dewey wrote uh, a book called Democracy and Education. And in that book, he states that knowledge is such a network of interconnections mm-hmm. that any past experience would offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problems presented in a new experience. And so this is a very different context. This is not scientific knowledge. This is knowledge, practical knowledge about how we engage with our futures. And what he's saying is that knowledge is a network of interconnections that allows us to uh, connect ideas both in the present, but also from the past to the present. And that connection allows us to make predictions about how we should behave in the future, what we should do differently. Um, So I want to uh, 
bring out that passage because that reminds us, I think, or underscores the fact that it's these relations between ideas and between times that becomes so critical for engaging in an adaptive way with our communities, with our environments, um, with our political uh, spheres, et cetera. And the price we pay for not having that, oof, and to miss that and to think things are separate and not connected, yikes, it really, dare I say, messes us up individually and as a society. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I am really inspired by some of the work that's um, happening not only in network science, for example, but also in um, indigenous theory and, and mm. wisdom, for, mm. for example. So if, if we go back to, um, you know, indigenous thought on our on our very continent here here in in the u.s for example a lot of the things that folks um there have been saying over and over and over again is that for example humans and the earth are deeply connected and interconnected and so therefore things we do to the earth that may not be particularly good are going to come back and haunt us in certain <laughs> ways and we and we see that happening right yeah. and and uh, yeah, so I think that I think really thinking about the con- the fundamental connection and relationality and the web of relationships that define our whole world, mm. right? So human social worlds, but also environmental worlds yes. and worlds of ideas, is absolutely crucial in this moment for us, um, so that we can navigate the challenges that that we're facing. Uh, that's a good point, and boy, we are indeed paying a price today. And I remember. You know, growing up when when progress was assumed and it was pictured as smokestacks, the more smokestacks, the more, you know, just digging up the earth, it was all better. And, and without any kind of thinking for the uh, relationship with the earth and, and, and the price we may have to pay. And I, I am an animal person, I suspect. You are too, both of you. I don't know, but I can't. I'm just guessing here. And I have a cat who is absolutely total curiosity. It's just amazing to me. She just, there's nothing else in the world except curiosity for her. (laughs) In what ways did you take animals as your inspiration? Yeah, we we are obsessed, I think, with the natural world. And, you know, animals, plants, fungi, you know, uh-huh. anything, you name it. Um, and I think part of that is is because of how we grew up. So we grew up in a really rural uh, environment. And that, that has stayed kind of as a core of who we are. Um, and I think as much as we've become people of books <laughs> and people of, uh, uh-huh. of, of mechanized computing, um, we, we continue to find uh, some of our deepest inspiration in the natural world. And Danny, why don't you talk a little bit about our appendix to the book? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as we were discussing just a, a few moments ago, Harry had excavated these three different archetypes of curiosity, mm-hmm. um, the butterfly, the hunter, and the dancer. But we also feel very strongly that these are not the only styles of curiosity that may be useful to us as humans in the present um, or in the future. And so what we did in the appendix of our book, it's called A Curious Bestiary, um, is that we went through 13 different uh, beasts and Um, discussed the ways in which they have been uh, described as 
paradigms of curiosity, but also ways in which we ourselves can imagine them displaying curiosity in the way they move through the world. Um, we go through some animal science, we go through literature, we go through some philosophy. And so I think what's useful about that is that curiosity for us can be as diverse as the number of species on the planet. Um, and that that diversity is something that we uh, really are excited about and think has so much possibility for our futures. We think a lot about how individuals can come together with one another, um, having different styles of curiosity. So you can imagine a menagerie of curious beasts coming together um, and in teams or groups or communities or um, collectives, we can do something new that we aren't able to do when we force people to fit into um, particular styles of curiosity. So maybe can, if I could just take a moment to go back to the beginning of our conversation where we, we were discussing education and, yes. and kids. Please. And I think there's a style of curiosity that is expected in the classroom. It is um, the kid who raises their hand the most times is the most curious, or a kid who asks the most questions is the most curious. So these are two actions that we commonly associate with a very curious child. However, I think that's a narrow view of what curiosity really is. There are so many children who, um, for personality reasons, for contextual reasons, are quieter, sit sure. in the back, yeah. are asking a million questions in their heads, right. but not verbalizing them or raising their hands. And so I think it's I think it's just important to realize that we are are sort of making we're collapsing the diversity of styles uh, that we expect curiosity to have in the classroom. And I think we do that actually as individuals grow up into um, high school education, undergraduate education, even in our, in our businesses um, and other um, institutions where we come together and we sort of assume that the, if you are going to be curious, this is the way you will be curious. So I think the B theory for us is a way to try to dismantle that assumption. And I can imagine a bunch of animals, a bunch of people, all different, all bringing something to the table, all having different styles of, of curiosity. And there's not just right. one style for sure. That's the, so many reasons why kids don't raise their hand. I, obviously, yeah. I, you've looked yeah. into it a lot more than I have. I just have a gut feeling about it. And it, it occurs to me that in channeling that innate curiosity, oftentimes rejecting it. Sometimes, like like that woman on, on Facebook who said she didn't want her kid to to learn anything that wasn't that that was different from what she the values and the beliefs that she insisted that that she impart on her children. Replacing curiosity with a certainty of old narrow definitions has demonstrably led to wars and the practice of terror against other cultures that's that's my assessment what what, what about your, your thoughts on that on on how you know rejecting this innate curiosity and insisting on narrow definitions that they must be uh, uh in control your thoughts yeah, I mean, I think that that actually relates very closely to Perry's earlier book called Curiosity and Power, where he works through the relation between curiosity and social justice movements. I don't know, Perry, do you want to feel like a reasonable place to go here? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I do a lot of work analyzing political resistance movements, you know, civil rights uh-huh. movement, but disability rights movement, things like this, and just showing that they are pure paradigms of curiosity. They ask, you know, what's really going on here? Um, what can we do differently? And how could we imagine a different sort of world for ourselves? And it, those are all incredibly curious questions. So, you know, most people think about political resistance movements as being um, uh, fun, you know, kind of inspired by a, a level of certainty that you've decided things aren't right, you know, <laughs> fix it, fix it. But I actually think it's it's fueled by by curiosity and, 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 and a need to ask really difficult, really important questions. Indeed, I must say. And for those who uh, just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Perry Zurin and Danny Bassett, uh, who have a new book out titled Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. And you talk about curiosity. I During the, the Vietnam War, I, I remember at first believing when you know I heard on TV, you know, a hundred communists were killed. I was thinking, yeah, good. You know, America is right. And then my curiosity was like, whoa, wait a minute. They're people too, and maybe this isn't the whole picture. You know, we were we were sold a bill of goods that it was freedom versus uh, Soviet uh, domination, you know, godless Soviet communism. And my curiosity, I, it led to my active participation in the anti-war movement because I realized that was a bunch of, damn lies. We, you know, these were people fighting for their own country. They had been occupied by the French and then the, the Japanese uh, and then they they just wanted their freedom. And that curiosity, I, I, I think you're right. The more I, I think about that and after this interview, I'll be thinking about it even more. You know, the, the old paradigm that, you know, blacks had to drink from uh, just colored water fountains and, you know, ride in the back of the bus and everything. It's like, Wait a minute, huh? How did how did we get here? Is that really the only way that it has to be? So th- I think that's a very interesting point, and that maybe, gosh, perhaps curiosity itself is is an essential part of participatory uh, democracy. And and you know, as they say, democracy is not a spectator sport. Uh, your your thoughts on that, either or both of you? Uh, absolutely. I would say it's a core to a participatory democracy. Yeah, we all have to be asking questions about what we're doing together and how we're organized and how we need to be organized and or reorganized, right? redirected um, together and, and to ask kind of collectively about our be reflective about our own uh, about our own nation and what and what our values are and, and what we're what we're reaching for. Um, and I think curiosity is central to those things. Yeah, I think the founders of this country and their their brilliance uh, in a Republican form of government, if we can keep it, and I don't know, sure, I hope we can keep it, uh, but uh, being curious is something we do. It's more than something we are. I wonder what that that active curiosity, one of them is, you know, questioning official government policy, uh, but in, in what other ways... You know, is is curiosity something we do more than something we are? Yeah, you know, I think about this, and Danny, I wonder your thoughts too. But I think about this in relationship to our own our own work. So Danny and I, right, we're professors, we're academics, we're scholars, um, and you think that th- of all places, uh, uh, scholarship should be the place of curiosity. 
where we're constantly asking new questions. We're trying to look at things differently. We're trying to move knowledge forward. We're trying to, to you know, mm-hmm. uh, really challenge ourselves to risk risk new perspectives. But we've found over and over and over again that even our own fields get stuck and attached to old ways of thinking about things and old ways of doing things. Um, Danny, you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I think that this comes up very clearly in the uh, sort of disciplinary policing that happens in Ah. scholarship. So it's like, you you know, people say, well, you can't ask that question. That's not that's not a physics question <laughs> or, you know, you can't ask that question. That's not a question that neuroscientists ask. That's in a different field. And I think it's really interesting because it foregrounds the boundaries between disciplines rather than understanding our world. And I think it's very possible and probable that in order to understand our world, there are questions that we need to ask that will cross boundaries and that we are free to sort of follow a questioning trail wherever it leads and maybe that will lead to a new place a new um area a new a new field a new set of people a new set of thinkers um and that there should be intellectual freedom to do that because what we care about isn't maintaining boundaries between disciplines what we care about is understanding our world right (laughs) um and i think that that's the case too in in interacting with um with people so um I'm a scientist. I'm not, I'm not a social scientist, but I do feel that it's important to be able to ask questions of different experiences and of different cultures and of different perspectives, um, rather than maintaining these silos of, well, that's a different culture, you know? Wow. Yes. It does seem pretty clear that the, that the opposite, the, the very antithesis of curiosity is something that's affiliated with what I call Trumpism, the, the idea, it's, it's amazing to me how the Trumpists try to get down on educators saying that they are indoctrinating our children. And I, I think if what they mean by indoctrinating is enabling students to think for themselves and mm-hmm. to explore, yeah, okay. But that's obviously not what they're doing. They, they want to shut down the freedom to explore. Uh, they mm-hmm. want to demand rigid adherence to pre-existing beliefs, which reinforce uh, conformity to, say, nationalism, domination of a version of Christianity over all others, and especially the extremely narrow roles of men and women. Uh, and mm-hmm. th- th- that just seems to terrify them. And they make up all this stuff you know, calling Democrats pedophiles, which is it's absurd. Their fear leads to hate. They, what are they afraid of? What effect is this having on any affirmations of the value of curiosity and understanding in our society that yeah, curiosity is a good thing? What's what's how is that that point of view affecting uh, uh, you know support for an appreciation of the value of curiosity? Yeah, I think this is this is so interesting just to hear you kind of reflect on the on the role of curiosity in this kind of political sphere and and especially your your note that are on on fear. Um I you know, I do think that sometimes fear can 
prompt a certain curiosity. So if I'm afraid, um, I can ask myself, well, how do I get away from the thing I'm afraid of? <laughs> and that in itself is, is, in a sense, a curious act, right? I'm trying to survive whatever it is I'm afraid yeah. of. Um, but, uh, or to shut it down or to, you know, get myself away. You know, there are ways in which one's trying to practice curiosity in response to fear. But I think the kind of curiosity that Danny and I are interested in supporting, and, and I think it sounds like you too, would be one that's much more fueled by something like hope um, that has some kind of openness, uh, willingness to walk into a future. We may not yet know what it looks like, mm -hmm. right? We haven't defined it in advance, but we want to work together to create it together that in a way that kind of fulfills the needs of everybody. Um, so, yeah, I like to think about where curiosity comes from and what it does if it's fueled by fear or if it's fueled by hope. Wow. I yeah I I prefer hope I I think that can be a very good thing, and aside from educators, parents have very important a role to play. Getting back to bringing up kids, there are many ways they can and do shut down curiosity in their kids or or encourage it. What can parents realistically do to encourage curiosity? Curiosity. What has your research found about? What, what works, what uh, is good for kids in terms of, uh, you know, sparking their curiosity and, 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 uh, and just keeping it going? I think one, go ahead, Danny. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I'll, I'll go quickly, but then I've, I really want to hear what you have to say too. Um, so I do think that uh, one thing that parents can do is the same thing that ed educators can do or um, business executives can do or anyone who's in a position um, of power over others, which is to seek to recognize the kind of curiosity that the child already has mm. and not wait to see the kind of curiosity that maybe um, that maybe the parent has or that maybe they've been taught mm. to look for. So mm -hmm. for example, the, the asking of many questions. So I think I think that it's what I would channel is having a the parent, be curious about their kid and about the kid's kind of curiosity and to try to listen and watch and wait and, and seek to understand the ways in which that child may be displaying uh, their curiosity or, or hiding their curiosity either, because that tells you a lot about how the child is thinking. Um, so I think just being, being very open to the fact that each child is going to show this in very different ways and, and being very inquisitive of, of how that child will be displaying it. Um, I know that Perry also has some uh, important ideas about how this might work in the context of neurodiversity. Perry, I don't know if that's the direction you were going to go or if you have other things you wanted to say. Sure, go for yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that is one thing I was going to say, which is that, um, you know, we are all born with different neurological capacities and, and structures. And some of us are neurotypical and some of us are neuroatypical, which means, you know, a whole mm -hmm. spectrum of, of kind of different learning differences mark each to us. And um, I think it, it's really, really important for us to get curious about how curiosity looks among people who don't think in the ways that are normalized in an educational setting. Mm. So kids mm -hmm. who are who don't do well in traditional educational settings, that doesn't mean they're not incredibly curious, right? And or incredibly bright. Um, so I think that's that's one big thing that I want I want educators and parents to be to be thinking about. And the second thing I would say is simply, you know, going back to your previous question, 
encouraging kids to think and learn across differences, across experiences, across histories, across cultures, and to really, in a sense, do this, be this butterfly, right, who's willing to kind of jump around and and read widely and experience the world widely so that they can come to kind of an understanding of themselves and their positionality in a world that's always so much bigger than their own kind of life experiences. I think that is crucial to, to nourish a kind of, I guess, a democratic practice of curiosity in, in your terms. Yeah, democratic practice of curiosity. And, and a number of weeks ago, I did a show about a group called Moms for Liberty, which despite their name, they're all about shutting down freedom, canceling teachers' abilities to encourage curiosity. They, they, they want just, you know, kids to not really have choices. And we all, we've all heard about, you know, kids who are, there are lots of parents who, you know, if their kid has, say, an interest in art or music or something, parents might say, oh, you can't make any money off of that. Forget that. But you know what? It makes us richer as human beings. I mean, where would we be without art? I suppose some people don't really care about art, but boy, I sure do. And uh, uh, it, it's it's uh, troubling that, that they do that. And that this group, uh, and there are others like that who feel like, uh, you know, and they scare teachers. They don't want teachers to be able to teach. They want, you know, just... Listen, teacher. This is what I want you. To, how I want you to channel my kid, and that's that's really frightening to me. But uh, what you're talking about is rather the antithesis of that. Some degree of hope and not fear. Uh, you know, the, the fear of of different uh, uh, sexual norms. When I do believe that there's a a wide range. There's a huge spectrum of of sexuality and. Why does that threaten anybody? Who cares? <laughs> what the heck? You know, I just, I don't get it. I mean, but the the fear of doing things differently, it's held back humanity, I think, in, in some degrees. But luckily, we've gotten through that and that art and curiosity and creativity has somehow managed to pull through after you know many centuries of, of repression and, and fear of that. And one of the things that, uh, another place aside from schools and family for human beings is the workplace. For a long time, not to blow my own horn, but what the heck, I've said that when workers have a stake and a say in what gets produced and how it get pr gets produced, you get better products. And of yeah. course, the, the model that's been in in effect for well over 100 years is the opposite. Decisions are made at the top, period. You don't question it, and that shuts down innovation. What can you tell us about your thoughts and, and, and observations about the role of curiosity in the workplace? Yeah, one of the things that we would say is, again, we need the same kind of appreciation of diverse kind of styles of curiosity in the workplace, um, and, and a real opportunity for those curiosities to be um, kind of used and deployed, right? Because so often, if mm -hmm. you're in a workplace, you get told what to do, and you just got to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't right. necessarily take any curiosity, right? Um, so we need, we need room for curiosity, we need room for different kinds of curiosity. And then we need, and this is just something we've learned to talking to people um, in, in the business world, 
We need time in every organization that is ungoverned, unstructured time in which workers, um, you know, hang out together in some sort of way and can brainstorm and can really think outside the box and ask themselves what kind of questions they think the, the organization needs to be asking or pushing toward. Um, it's it, it too often time for every worker is so overly governed, overly constrained, already saturated. We can't get everything done, even if we tried in a day that we're supposed to get done in a day, right? And it leaves no room for the kind of um, really rich, reflective, critical, creative curiosity that, that would make any company do better, right? Yeah, <laughs> it seems to me the case, but uh, that, that's, that structure isn't there for a lot of places. I can't help but think that in those companies and businesses that, that practice uh, enabling their workers to be curious and to make suggestions and, and you know what they see is you know, if something can be done better, let there be a, a, a way to uh, you know, express that and reward that. I, it's just my feeling here. And um, I believe most, a, a, a lot of the most earth-shaking scientific discoveries have come, of course, mm. by accident. And when practitioners are exercising curiosity, uh, that's when oftentimes the accidents of great discoveries happens. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of curiosity in both science and the arts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would I would add here, you're absolutely right in the sciences that many of the biggest discoveries have arisen through serendipity, that um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know somebody was following a path of curiosity and discovered something that wasn't what they were looking for, mm -hmm. didn't have the function that they were hoping for, um, but it turns out could, could drastically change theories or medicine or technology. Um, and there's actually a growing... Um, the growing evidence that suggests that the capacity to make those sort of serendipitous discoveries depends upon um, some isolated time or some isolated mm. questioning. So I want to raise this in contrast to um, the need for time for people to come together and brainstorm together. Uh -huh, so that's uh -huh. sort of teamwork um, and 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 communication based work. I think there's also evidence that in science, um, it's important to have some space where individuals can be questioning alone um, and seeking out trails through knowledge that nobody else may have thought of um, and that nobody else may want to follow them on. Uh, and that that individual, that individual nature is sometimes needed to increase the diversity of the conclusions that can be drawn or the kinds of questions that can be asked. One of the issues with, with um, too much communication is that people come to agreement or they they tend to follow one person or mm. um they all you know move in one particular way where the paths have been well trodden um right, right. whereas if you have an individual that has some space for solitary thinking uh that can lead to um or, or just smaller groups, even pairs, maybe it doesn't have to be completely solitary. Mm -hmm. That can lead to greater diversity in the thoughts that are brought to the table. Boy, that does bring up the, the sense of hope in me as I listen to you talk. Mm -hmm. If there were a Curiosity Hall of Fame, who might be in it? Yeah, is it the cat? It's the cat, right? The cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's your cat, specifically. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> 
you know, the answer for me to this question, I think it changes. Uh, thankfully, I think it changes as I as I go along in my life. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I think that's because um, the kinds of curiosities that most inspire me are are relevant to what, whatever it is I'm facing at the time. Um, but I know, you know, somebody that we we quote quite often in the book is Gloria Anzaldúa. And she's a Chicana feminist um, who was writing in the 80s and 90s and just really revolutionized how people think about um, living on the border between U.S. and Mexico, but also living on the border between genders and sexualities mm. and mm. Um, classes and all, all these things and, and trying to think about the complexity, you know, because mm. so often I think people – People think, you know, well, you're either this or you're that. Right. And, uh, right. and uh, she, she was one of the early folks who was just pushing, well, it's it, it's always more than two. Whatever the distinction is, it's always more than two, sure. you know? Uh, so she's she and she was a voracious reader and a and just a wild writer and a thinker and incredibly creative. And just for me, she's one of these kind of Hall of Fame curiosity people. And what's her name again? Gloria Anzaldúa. Anzaldúa. Well, I did yeah. want to ask, I mean, back to politics, what a surprise. I do find it (laughs) troubling that many on the left dismiss Trumpists. They have some, you know, they they say, oh, they're all this or they're all that. Instead of opening up their minds in curiosity to ask, what makes their fellow countrymen that way? Why do people, uh, why do they become, you know, Trumpists, which is so foreign to me, for example, but if we can ask what factors led to their turning to the far right, wouldn't this this exercise of curiosity be useful in bridging some of the divides we now see, being curious and not just dismissing uh, the, the Trumpists, but being curious as to how they got there and like, because they're basically at heart, you know, decent people who have the same wants and needs as everybody else. What about, Wouldn't this exercise of curiosity be useful in bridging some of the divides that are kind of frightening? Absolutely. And I mean, we, uh, we have to engage in that curiosity in our own kind of family and extended families and things. You know, I think for many of us, right, there's political polarization all the way up and down our, our kind of nuclear units as well as our, mm. as our more community units. Um, and yeah, I do. I do think that we need this sort of curiosity, a kind of curiosity that is fueled by a desire to build new connections between people and between ideas rather than to isolate. Mm. So here we are uh, in it, it, close to the end of 2022. Uh, given the, the, the perspective that you come from about curiosity, again, the title of the book is Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. Uh, curiosities uh, getting somewhat battered these days. How how hopeful or not are you two? Yeah, Danny, what do you think about that? Hopeful are you? I'm a I'm an optimist, um, so I I think I am I am quite hopeful. But I do think that hope depends upon commitments to. Um, hearing from one another and understanding one another. So I think that, that hope sort of never, never walks alone or maybe shouldn't mm. walk alone, um, mm. but needs to walk hand in hand with, with other commitments. Interesting. Well, I, I try to be hopeful and, and realize that uh, as we grow and, and as movements happen through the years that 
people do question the official line, and that does uh, make us make us better and uh, you know step outside the the narrow path that's been assigned to us. That uh, it does it works. It's it's made us better as as individual humans and as a society. Fascinating discussion that we don't often take a chance to look at. The book is Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, and I've been pleased to have with us its authors, Perry Zurin and Danny Bassett. And uh, boy, there's there's so much to learn. Now I'm, I'm really, <laughs> dare I say, curious about uh, what the possibilities for curiosity in our future may be and how we can encourage that and, and weave that into our lives as individuals and as a community. Thank you so much for being with us today and keeping democracy alive. Thank, Thank you for having us. I stand on a bridge before the cavern If you like that discussion, subscribe. Don't miss a single show. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.